Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And uh, this week, we're talking with Chris Bedford. Chris is a senior editor over at The Federalist. He's on the board for the National Journalism Center over at YAF. And he's a founding partner at RightForge, which, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, because I'm bad at this kind of stuff, but it's building the guts of an alternative and free internet infrastructure, uh, trying to circumvent some of these big tech companies, and more importantly, the sort of underlying infrastructure of the internet uh, that's in control of companies that largely agree with each other that they don't very much like the American way of life. Um, but he's also the author of The Art of the Donald, which offers motivational <laughs> self-help advice through the through the mouth of Donald Trump. Um, and he previously led the Daily Caller News Foundation. You've seen him around on Fox, Fox Business, uh, just, just generally on the Federalist Podcast everywhere. So uh, welcome, Chris, to High Noon. Oh, thanks for having me. That's exactly right. That's what we're doing at Right Forge. Um, so before we get to some of the, the more perhaps like more abstract or larger topics uh, about our future here. Can we, let, let's take a second to talk briefly about this Inflation Reduction Act, this <laughs> Orwellianly named Inflation yes. Reduction Act. Um, it looks like it's about to become law. And, um, you know, you've done a lot of reporting in and around the Hill over the years. You know, how do you see essentially the politics and the pieces of this coming together? And what do you think the impact will be uh, going forward on the politics of the Democratic Party and, and of the Republican Party as well? Well, it's, it's a perfect example of how politics actually seems to work between Republicans and Democrats, where Democrats come here to change the country, and they're not really – they are willing to take electoral losses to that effect. They're, the, the driving motivation for a lot of Democratic congressmen and senators, not all of them, but a lot of them, is to be activists and to stand up for their causes and their constituents and their beliefs. They come here to, to really affect change, and they realize, like Nancy Pelosi realized after Obamacare, yeah, I'm going to lose my majority for this, but I'll, the, the country will be changed, and I'll come back. And now they're doing that sort of thing again. Uh, this, is just, this is just something, the way it seems to play out all the time. And you compare that to Republicans, where too many of them come there as just a cap on a successful career in business. And, hey, it's great to have uh, businessmen in office and in Washington from time to time, and certainly it would be great to have that input on this kind of bill. But it's not ideal because they're, they have legacies that they want to ensure. They're not here for battle. They're not here for change. They're not here to be the kind of activists that will change this country forever. And because of that, they're always starting off on the wrong footing. So even though the inflation is rising, even though raising taxes is suicidal, even though they're facing a red wave, the Democrats have said, hold, hold my beer, grabbed the banner, and, and ran over the cliff with it. And this, that kind of dedication to their politics – this is a puts on complete odds with the GOP. I mean, this reminds me of 2010, where uh, what, what are we going to do when the GOP comes back into power here? Are they just going to come back and gain a bunch of seats and then what? Do nothing? I mean, make a couple tinker around here, change corporate taxes. They're certainly not going to come back and fire the 80,000 IRS agents that have been brought in. They might get rid of some of the tax provisions, but the Democrats will have made an impact. And it's great. It's fine. It's nice to have some more Republicans in Congress and the Senate, but not if they're playing ball like this. So, I mean, I guess the big question here is is whether if there is a uh, red wave um, and, and that outcome is more in doubt than it used to be. It, it sounds like the polls are, are narrowing a little bit. It's not as um, overwhelming against the Democrats in polling for these midterm elections. But let's say that the Republicans do gain a significant number of seats. The, the bigger question to me has always been, what are they going to do with it? Um, in terms of actual sort of infrastructural, or I don't know if that's a word, but um, underlying structural change moving forward. Because I very much agree with what, the way you kind of laid this out. There, much of American political history in the last 
maybe century. It seems to be just like a series of, you know, sort of leftist gains and then a, a period of consolidation and plateauing. Um, and then the next, uh, the next like sort of transformational agenda from the left happens. And then there's a period of sort of adjustment and plateauing where Republicans don't actually, maybe they, they win a, a couple little things around the edges, but fundamentally the infrastructure and the underlying structure of politics doesn't change, accepts that, that new leftist, um, step forward. And then all the arguments we have are in the new world where the parameters yes. have once again shifted to the left, right? Um, and, and I think it's the most obvious in culture right, where, you know, now uh, positions that were completely ordinary for both Democrats and Republicans, even 10 years ago, we have difficulty getting Republicans to embrace, right, <laughs> um, in, in public. The, like, the gay marriage you know, vote was a complete and total embarrassment. Republicans couldn't even you, – you have the, the head of the uh, Freedom Caucus coming out there and voting yes, and then the Freedom Caucus just issues a statement saying vote no. People were surprised to find out that the, some of their colleagues were still socially conservative. It blew their mind. No one had thought seriously about this. None of the think tanks in Washington had been really priming members to actually have the papers, and the staffers hadn't been priming the members to actually have talking points on this. There's no secret why, because a lot of them think it's a dumb agenda. They don't. They don't not actually interested in preserving traditional marriage. They think it's bad politics. Think it's something they'll be punished for. And the result is Republicans weren't even able to voice or, or put words to their concerns over this. The only even arguments that we saw over that bill were essentially procedural, uh, whether or not this bill should be allowed or if it was going too quickly or, or how the vote, what the wording should be. None of them are really about the, well, here's an actual uh, ideological or theological or, or political defense of marriage and what it means in a society. And that's, that's the same thing we're Facing with the Republicans is exactly right. The Democrats make that kind of change that's much more structural to the government, and Republicans tinker around the edges. Uh, there, I mean, there are some people who are standing out as folks who don't act like that. I mean, uh, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, really stands out. Just last week, saying, "Well, I'm going to fire this 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 elected at attorney, uh, district attorney, because he's refusing to uphold the law that's been passed by the people." I'm going to take him away. Then he says, well, you can't fire me. You don't have the authority. And Sanders comes back and says, the police are here to escort you to get your stuff and your key card has been changed. Let's see who has the authority. That kind of strong action against someone who's refusing to uphold laws is the kind of thing that you really need. It's something that Democrats are great at. Basically, aside from gun control, Democrats have been able to get most of the agenda that they want, either through votes or through executive action. They have no problem with that. When you have Republicans typically in leadership, they say, well, we can't we don't have the authority to take that step. We don't have the authority to take that executively or they do something that can be quickly undone or they say we don't have the votes, even though they often do have the votes. Leadership doesn't want to fight on these things. There, there are also some there are some hopeful people who are coming up in the Republican Senate, potentially. Uh, uh, you've got uh, J.D. Vance is someone who's really interesting. Masters is interesting. These folks who might actually have a different governing philosophy. And, and that's a positive sign. Uh, our publisher, Sean, at the Federalist, Sean Davis, is fond of saying that politicians basically for their entire career reflect the year that they were elected in, at least Republican congressmen do and, and senators. Mm. So that Tea Party wave that we got in 2010 uh, is going to be one that's going to forever really be focused on a lot of those fiscal issues and some of that Tea Party stuff and the constitutionalism. Uh, the, the Bush era Republicans who got elected, are they going to be maybe more hawkish or this or that? And the ones who are being elected right now in this moment, hopefully, will be the kind of politicians who can really actually stand up against the status quo and the consensus. The kind of folks who come up like 
Josh Hawley, for example, who was the only person in the entire U.S. Senate who voted against sending more troops and more money to more European countries right now in the middle of this American meltdown. That, that new way of thinking is necessary. There are some decent signs on the horizon for it, but still we're a long way from changing uh, the way that re- people really think. And I think the voters are catching on to that. Like you were talking about, the, the, the gap is lessening. The Democrats are raising more money, especially after the Dobbs decision. Uh, online fundraising than Republicans are. They're actually gaining in that ground. Uh, There's some things that are motivating people, and you'd have to be silly to really look at this and say, well, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy will save the country if we just give them more money and and elect them more politicians. People are catching on. Just I know this is like just examples from life, uh, but in the last couple of days, the amount of people I've talked to who are just political watchers who have professional lives elsewhere – kind of uh, the boomer generation, the baby boomer generation, who have been extremely down on the prospects of the future of our country and whether or not our currency is going to collapse and whether or not we as a civilization continue. Are ma- are ma- it's, it's most of them, the ones who I've talked to, think that way. The gone, it seems, are the days of just the mindless, well, the pendulum will swing back. Oh, the, the mysterious backlash that never actually comes is coming. Oh, the liberals have pushed too far this time. We're going to vote them out of office. People aren't talking like that. Mm-hmm like they did during the Tea Party wave. People are, I think, a little bit more down, and they've realized that we're in a country at this point where political opponents are being jailed, where the IRS is stocking up to be bigger than the Department of Defense, the Border Patrol, and everything. It's like State Department maybe even combined. Uh, we're at a point where there's a lot less faith in just the normal mechanisms of government to sort of right, to right the ship of state. It's a It's a... It's a dangerous point to be in, for sure. It's only—it's really only a matter of time before some we get we get more situations like we saw with the Bundy ranchers, where local people are saying, "No, you're not going to arrest this person." I mean, I, I certainly am not calling for violence. I just—I seem to think—I—I—I I, I see it around the corner at some point with the, the pushes that we've been seeing and with the general pressures we're feeling in this country. The same kind of pressures that made Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump uh, either gain such popularity in 2016—they have not been lessened in any way at all and it's still rising people in this country are still getting more upset on both sides it's a it's a dangerous brew we're living in yeah i mean i I think that's actually one of the biggest differences between the tea party which i also see as a populist movement um and the the trump wave it came after and i think only the after the four years of of the trump presidency has only been reinforced and i i actually think you just pretty much put your finger on the difference i think the tea party was more restorationist more hopeful and the number of you know everyone who listens to this regularly knows that i i was i was a huge tea party person you know um you know an active that's where we met and in the rallies yeah (laughs) and um but the number of of really sweet like grandmas at tea party rallies who would come up to me and and, like try to get me to buy in to some sort of obscure silver bullet plan because they think they found something in the constitution that would fix all of our problems was very very high and it was actually very charming right they're like no but but the constitution says this and obviously the government is not abiding by that right um but there was this very sort of restorationist um an almost naive, I think, aspect of it that was, they really did have faith that if, if we could just, you know, elect the right people or um, we could, for example, do a convention of the states or, or um, do some kind of like sort of mechanism to cut through what was increasingly um, developing 
sort of lines in politics and and lines of power, they thought they could just cut through that with some kind of quirky, uh, you know, constitutional interpretation. Um, I, I think you get to they four even eight years later. Stood. Yeah, they you get to eight, yeah those those same folks. Those yes, same and- folks are no longer thinking that way, which is interesting because I, I, I'm. I don't know about about whether the Tea Party politicians who were elected in that wave, if, if they are sticking um, or not in, in exactly the same mentality. But the people I don't think are the, the same people who went to the, the Tea Party rallies weren't initially. And there's a lot of data to back this up. They weren't initially Trump fans. Um, they, they weren't. They were mostly in the camp of Ted Cruz, maybe Mark Rubio in, in those 2016 primaries. But uh, since then. I think they really have lost faith. And I think you're right. I think that's that's incredibly dangerous when even the Tea Party grandmas in this country no longer really have faith uh, that that the Constitution is going to be respected at all. That that's an incredibly dangerous place to be for Americans. That's one of the things that Lincoln pointed out in his first public address at the Lyceum was the dangers of lawlessness that we're experiencing from our government, the dangers of lawlessness that we're seeing in our streets. That makes the criminals and those people, everyone from common street criminals to and murderers and robbers, to people who just chased me out of Washington, D.C. after 18 years, all the way up to the FBI, uh, to the IRS, to other aspects of the federal government. They don't fear consequences and they don't respect the law. And after a while, that makes the people who are patriotic, who do love the law, who want to stand up for it, start to doubt it as well. So you got one side that's attacking it and the other side that says, well, it's not defending me. It's not protecting me. And the result is that both sides start to withdraw the lawless and the, the wannabe law-abiding start to withdraw their affinity for the union that they, they had pledged to previously. And they start to withdraw their affinity for the state itself to actually be able to help them at all. And, and, and folks have really woken up to that. I mean, there was reason for optimism during the Tea Party, I think. Barack Obama was a pretty right. We forget this, of course, in the rose-colored glasses of history, but he was a radical uh, president who dramatically changed the American people's relationship with the government and the Democratic Party's relationship with the activists who now run it. Uh, He came in, and we, uh, the right, elected a bunch of politicians to try and stop it, like you said, pointing to the Constitution. You see all these... uh, Videos coming out of activists going into the, to their talk to their congressman, the senator, and quiz them on the U.S. Constitution. But the reality that they found out is not only do people not know it, but they don't care. It's 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 a dead document. To cite a, one person who's more pessimistic than I am, he said to watch the political fights in the U.S. right now is like watching maggots on a corpse, where the left is rooting for the maggots and the right is rooting for the corpse. There's there's a disconnect here in exactly what they are able to do. And anyone who's watched the Trump administration where generals are openly bragging about subverting civilian control, diplomats are openly bragging about subverting the president, uh, the Senate and the FBI, the CIA and all the former heads of intelligence are coming out to undermine the president with a completely bogus accusations of treason. The hog tie him. Judges are refusing to let the border be enforced. And now they're putting people in prison for over a year participating in a riot when all the, all the riots went unpunished, putting some people away for six, seven, eight, nine years. And you've got the former uh, Obama, uh, Eric Holder, attorney general, saying that Trump is going to be put in prison. Uh, how could they possibly look at that and say, well, I'm just going to get a Gadsden flag, an American flag and a Bible and go down and just try to talk to people in D.C. about the Constitution? They realize what Breitbart realized a long time ago, what some folks have become come to realize around that this is – these, these guys are playing for keeps. And I think the moment that snapped my brain and made me say, well, this is not just political handball anymore. This is, this is really serious civilizational stuff 
it was was at the end of the Obama presidency when ISIS was careening through the Middle East, crucifying priests, burning churches, and martyring people on camera. Uh, at that time, Barack Obama went to the prayer breakfast, and he told Christians to, quote, get off your high horse about gay marriage, which was like not even something that the right was really fighting very hard on, to my disappointment, at that time. He went there and lectured Christian leaders on this. And I thought, you know, this guy represents a group of people that have like a civilization, a deep civil hatred for, for Christian civilization and a lot of Western values. And this is not just patty cake. This is not just what the Republicans are going to kind of go in here and do. Oh, we're going to cut this tax rate. We're going to snip that tax rate. We're going to put more troops in this country. Uh, they need to play seriously, serious hardball. You can have some people who are, you know, good Tea Party folks who may have gotten along very well in a Congress or a Senate that abided by the Constitution. You know, Ben Sass would have been a fine U.S. Senator in 1890. But right now, the level of fighting that's actually going on in our country and the and the, the tactics you need to have uh, point more toward people like Ron DeSantis, who's willing to go in there and say, no, you're out of power now. No, it's Disney. You can't do that. I don't care if you're a private company. I'm, I'm a governor of a state that represents the people. You've attacked our people. Now you lose your tax status. That kind of hardball is what needs to spread throughout the party. But there's this – well, the activists, I think, to your point, know what time it is. Some of the candidates really know what time it is. The Republican leadership uh, absolutely do, do not understand the, the nature of the, the threat to this republic and whether or not we're going to continue much longer. Yeah, Um it's interesting. I, I also I, I have read the Lyceum address more times since 2020, since the summer of 2020, than I had in my entire life prior to that. I mean, I'd obviously I'd read it, you know, as part of history class. I think I read it once more as as an intern for one of the various you know conservative yeah. Inc. organizations. But um, for some reason, I really returned to it in 2020, and I just want to read one piece of it that you you're alluding to. Um, you know, Lincoln's giving this speech. And obviously, I think I actually think um, the run up to the Civil War is probably the the closest, not because I think actually we're about to be plunged into a civil war. I think that's actually geographically implausible. But um, but because of the divisions, the deep divisions, as, as you say, on civilizational level, citizenship level questions. And, and Lincoln gives a speech essentially about the the consequences of lawlessness Um so, so he says, by such examples, by instances of the perpetrators of such acts going unpunished, the lawless in spirit are encouraged to become lawless in practice. And having been used to no restraint, but dread of punishment, they thus become absolutely unrestrained. Having ever regarded government as their deadliest bane, they make a jubilee out of the suspension of its operations and pray for nothing so much as its total annihilation. While on the other hand, good men who love tranquility, who desire to abide by the laws and enjoy their benefits, who would gladly spill their blood in the defense of their country, seeing their property destroyed, their families insulted, and their lives endangered, their persons injured, and seeing nothing in prospect that forebodes a change for the better, become tired of and disgusted with a government that offers them no protection and are not much averse to a change in which they imagine they have nothing to lose. I, I think that that very well describes basically the last two years, really since the summer of 2020, something really seemed to shift in the summer of 2020 when, um, you know, what you see simultaneously riots everywhere and, um, and very, uh, to your point, no punishment for it. And then the corresponding riot in the Capitol and seeing the book being thrown at people um, who participated in that riot 
on January 6th, which I am by no means endorsing. I think riots are bad. And I think everybody who participated in a riot uh, should be given their due process, convicted in a court of law of whatever crimes that they have um, they have perpetuated. But the, the fundamental feeling in, in a lot of part of this country, and I can't say that it's false, is that there will be no fair justice applied um, you know, across the board without regard to political affiliation, that the, the justice in this country is itself political now, that the, the very systems of the United States, that exactly conservatives were always the most trusting of, right? Law enforcement, the FBI, all of a sudden, you know, um, it'd be very interesting. It'd be very interesting to see specifically what the polling on law enforcement and, for example, and specifically bracket out federal law enforcement has what has happened to polling in terms of trust in those institutions on the right. Um, and, and the scariest thing is I can't say that folks who have totally lost trust in that are wrong. You're right. I mean, remember probably one of the last institutions to so the Supreme court, which is still teetering or holding on by a thread, still have conservative respect and it, tr- it didn't deserve it was the U S military. Uh, the Pentagon does not deserve the respect of the average American citizen. That's because we, we get all bent out of shape. We we don't like these Ivy League elites who lecture us. The people on the right don't like that, and we don't realize that that's generally what the political class of generals are. Like once you get beyond two stars, it becomes a political decision. And that's who these folks are. They're Ivy League educated elites who are separate from where we are. So when remember, well, to Tucker your Carlson point earlier, out, just just to interject one thing to your point earlier, um, Obama fired a lot of of generals because of political reasons. So uh, largely what we have now is the Obama Corps of generals continue. Exactly. And if I was president, I would fire everyone three stars and above and apologize to those or allow them to retire and resign and take their pensions and apologize to those good ones I got because after two stars, it's just political. But uh, I remember when Tucker Carlson went after the secretary of defense and the head of the joint chiefs, and just started attacking them. And people on the right were like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. And that was just a few months ago. Now it's commonplace to see people attacking them because you've got these generals coming out and insulting American people, talking about investigating them, talking about ignoring the president, uh, talking about sabotaging the foreign policies of the president. You start to wonder, you look at this like, hold on a second, Barack Obama ran on withdrawing from Afghanistan, and then Donald Trump ran on withdrawing from Afghanistan, and both of them were lied to, and both of them were held up by the generals who said, well, it's just around the corner, we're going to fix this or fix that. And when Joe Biden was just like completely out of it enough to actually do it and just completely ignore the generals, well, they made it into a complete and total boondoggle and made sure to embarrass his administration forever, even at the cost of American lives, making dumb decisions on the ground, and blame Joe Biden for it. It's like... And that people are catching on to this. You know, I'm, I'm writing an essay. Um, sorry, sorry to have like a downer podcast, especially since I'm sitting here in this Ocean is City, Maryland. Po- <laughs> this is always a downer podcast. I just have podcast. some crab. Okay. I'm going to have an bow in a minute. <laughs> um, I'm generally feeling good. This is positive me. But I'm writing an essay uh, this week about how COVID might have actually been kind of a good thing for the United States in that it really exposed everything. There was that amazing essay, I think it was in Tablet, uh, in 2020, it's called Everything is Broken, that just went through how much we, we don't realize that our society is just sailing on, uh, on Wall Street that's completely full of it, on a hospital, a medical system, that's an insurance system that's completely busted, on, a, on American corporations that sell us out to foreign countries. Uh, like All these things that we just assume, like, oh, it's, they're going. Most of them are just going from inertia, and our trust for them is based on ideas of what they used to be. 
So you take a look at what COVID did. You couldn't have convinced people in 2019 that the government would shut their churches and arrest their preachers and not allow them to see their grandparents or their husbands and wives or their children while they died and not allow to bury them, would not allow their kids to go to school, would arrest people in public for going to meetings without wearing masks. You, know, you wouldn't have convinced people that, but all of that happened. And whether it's the school systems or the universities or the medical systems and the trust the science and the Fauci people, the government – our, our leaders in, in our parishes, the charities, the activists, the police that, and, the, and the riots and the politicians that failed on that, all of that was laid bare over two years. We saw that the, like grandma's no longer going to come up with a, here's a clause in the Constitution that saves the republic after she's seen these politicians that swore to uphold the Constitution and these police officers arresting preachers. It's like, okay, if they're doing that, if they're so completely ignoring the Constitution – then we have to we have to find ways to fight in their own grounds and fight. We have to understand that this is happening, and so that's there's some aspect of 2020 has really woken people up. Combined that combined with the election, that combined with the Russia hoax, has really woken folks up to the level of this. But not Republican leadership. Back to that. I mean, Mitch McConnell just released his plan, sneaked it out over July Fourth weekend, but how he wanted to quote disengage from the culture wars. It's like. Mitch McConnell, you can't disengage from the culture wars when the invasion is in your home city. It's not like we're not at a point right now where Republican politicians are out there trying to shut down gay bars and transgender bars. We're at a point where left-wing activists are trying to defund your schools if you don't let girls into boys, ba- boys into girls' bathrooms, where people are being shut down. The culture war is a defensive action right now. You can't simply disengage from that. But – Politicians are generally cowardly, so I, I do I, I do have some hope that between the Dobbs decision, which was just a real, a great victory, the first victory, the best, most important victory the rights had since the f- end of the Cold War, um, if it can be capitalized on correctly, particularly, we've had some great things. It's been a couple of wonderful wins uh, for the American right, and if we can capitalize that, then we can make folks move. Mitch McConnell's someone who is going to do whatever he wants whenever he wants. But politicians like Kevin McCarthy are much more amenable, much more political. They've, they'll go with the wind if you push them in the right direction. Maybe not as hard as you would like, but they're not like a John Boehner or a Mitch McConnell that just refuse to do what other guys want and just do their own thing. So there, there are good reasons for hope. One, just like an addict, the first thing you have to do if you want to defeat alcoholism or drug addiction is admit that you've got a problem. And we have thank goodness, gotten by this um, baby boomer generation optimism of, well, don't worry, the pendulum will swing back and there'll be a backlash. It doesn't really work when you gutted, gutted the body like we have, the left has done. Uh, we have at least awareness of the problem. The next step is going to be trying to fight it and, reco- and, 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 and recovery, and there are different paths being laid out. I, I think I've voiced my approval of the more uh, forward-hitting DeSantis-style path, the Josh Hawley-style path, uh, so this can be done, but we are fighting an uphill battle. And hey, at least we've got awareness now. At least we know. At least we know our politicians don't give a darn. At least we know they're willing to kick our kids out of school and shut down our churches. Uh, but they'll never pray, God. They'll never shut down a gay orgy. Uh, we know this now. So it's like, okay, this is what we're dealing with. Um, I guess the counterpoint to your optimism. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying is, to be optimistic. Is is because. Uh, you just referenced that tablet essay, um, and that's actually where I wanted to go next for this conversation. It really seems like nothing works, um, and and that is from you know 
withdrawal plans executed by by the Pentagon out of Afghanistan to, you know, just trying to fly from point A to point B, B these days or going to the grocery store. And just I, to, to some some extent, it almost seems like people have gotten used to this. This is, this is something that has shocked me because one of my optimistic sort of counterpoints to my own pe- pessimism has always been. You know, <laughs> You've the, always the been great, a ray of sunshine in that. What are you yeah, talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> But has always been that the American people and particularly the American middle class is not used to sacrifice and um, is not used to material want, is not used to not having things at their fingertips. Um, And I didn't think that the American middle class would tolerate, for example, shortages. Right. Um, I, I did not think that. I didn't think that moms in like, you know, Nova or whatever would be okay with the fact that now you just go to the grocery store and you're never actually quite sure whether or not the things you want to buy will be there and you see something and it's almost like a uh, you know, late Soviet style, like you're, oh, great. Like they actually baby have formula. ground wow. beef today. Yeah. Um, baby formula today. You know, I, I just, and I didn't think that Americans would accept it, but I, I don't see any mass rebellion at this point. Yes, there's there's pushback against inflation because obviously that's directly hitting people in their pocketbooks and they just can't afford to do the things that they need to do um, to to support their families. But in terms of, of some of the larger questions, there seems like more acquiescence than I thought there would be to something what to give me convenience as, or give me death. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought this is the. Yeah, and you know, I, I thought this is America. This is the land of the customers. Always, always right. Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I would expect this kind of acquiescence from Europeans, um, but but not from Americans. And and I'm kind of shocked to see it. I, I don't know, but you 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 go you do a lot of these trips where you just basically go to pubs between one you know one side of America and the other, and you just talk to people. And by the way, I, I highly recommend a lot of of Chris's trips. He did them during COVID. He did them during the election, um, and he he does them every so often. And he just talks to people um, over beers or, or or whatever. And um, so he really gives, I think, a, a great picture of where a lot of people are in the country. Um, but what what have you heard? I mean. Not from people who are already "quote unquote" know what time it is, right? Um, not not from the part of the right. But what do you hear when you last did one of these trips, where you just talk to people about sort of the state of brokenness of everything? Because that's got to be that's got to be like this. Just there's this just oppressive feeling in America now that nothing is act. You can't count on anything, and, and nothing is actually going to work as you would have expected it to in say 2019. You know, and this is, I guess, this is just so far removed from the average American experience. But here's how it's affecting even like the fancy Washington, D.C. experience. Uh, went down, you go down to the Belgian bar, which is a place, you know, it's got mussels and fries and Belgian beer. They can't get it. They can't get, they can get mussels and fries. We get those in the United States, but they can't get the products from abroad. They can't actually stock them. You walk in any of these places, they don't have it because of supply chain disruptions. Uh, you drive around, actually, it was, it was, the line was actually surprisingly less bad. Uh, when I just came over the Bay Bridge, over the Chesapeake Bay earlier this week. But you see lines of tanker ships just waiting to try and get in. You see it in California. You see it in the eastern and the mid-Atlantic uh, because they, 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 they can't unload things. You, the, the, I'm in Ocean City right now, Maryland, and Phillips, which has been an institution for decades and decades, granted it had declined, uh, had to shut down because they couldn't hire waiters and waitresses. There was a uh, a restaurant right next door to the grocery store that had a sign handwritten sign on the door that said, "Sorry, we can't be open until 3 p.m. today. We don't have the staff." Um, so 
people are recognizing this all over the country. Uh, people are being having diff- even more difficulty than before buying houses, which made it so the rental market's tough. Inflation is hitting everybody. The government it looks poised to pass. The federal government looks poised to pass something that's going to increase gas prices at this moment. Some of the taxes, increase prices on coal, increase prices uh, taxes on energy. That will across the board in- increase Americans' energy budgets by like twenty percent or something. I think Americans' tax reform suggested, and this is. Politicians have always been able to play a little game where they take credit for the stock market ups and they don't really take credit. For the, they blame other people for the stock market downs. It's hard to tell exactly who's responsible for what. Those kind of things can be papered over by other political issues. But with inflation and with this new act, the American Tackling Inflation Act, whatever they're calling it, that only one in five Democrats so far have said act, only one in five Democrats have said they think we'll tackle inflation. That's how bad the messaging is on this, like worse than the Patriot Act, the messaging. Uh, I think people are blaming Washington, D.C. They are blaming the politicians. They are, we'll have to wait and see. But, well, the culture war is really changing votes in the, in the, among black men and among Hispanics, uh, men and women. Um, I think the pocketbook stuff and the baby formula stuff – might be something that's going to impact and and change the votes of that increasingly fickle group of people that's eventually going to destroy the republic, uh, white middle class women. Uh, they're they're getting hit by this, so maybe this election they'll be they'll be more Republican. But you know, back to our initial point, what are the Republicans going to do about it? Yeah, I guess um, the next thing I wanted to ask you is. Because our financial situation is so dire, right? Um, because we are, are living through that that charming Carter relic stagflation, uh, whether or not one argues about the definition <laughs> the 70s of recession. Um, at least the seventies had more fun drugs, you know. This is like <laughs> our our version of this is is scrolling the algorithm, you know. That's that's the soma of of the twenty twenties, which is not nearly as fun, I would think, as Studio Fifty Four. But in any case, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, the doesn't this just give the establishment right the excuse they need to focus only on economics, um, because even. Donald Trump, obviously, the the major enduring uh, wins from that administration, if you leave aside the Supreme Court for a moment, um, were tax cuts, regulatory cuts. None of these things I disagree with in any way. I think they are good and they did lead to a booming economy. And and one of the most important aspects of that economy, an actual boom for the lower half of um, the income spectrum in America, you actually started to see some improvements um, among among uh, purchasing power and wages for people in the lower half of the income spectrum. So it's not that none of that stuff is important. It's just it feels like we're culturally driving off a cliff. And it feels like to, to the point to Lincoln's point in the Lyceum address that our institutions are so fundamentally corrupt, politicized, unreliable that there are deeper questions of that are way beyond dollars and cents as, as pressing as those are, but because our economic situation seems so, um, so genuinely tough for the average American right now. I mean, does, does the Mitch McConnell type, you know, just do a, do a victory lap, um, you know, undo some of of the tax burdens, maybe open up energy a little bit, uh, energy production in the United States, again, all good things that I'm in favor of, and and do they just take take a victory lap and forget about all of the lessons from 2016? Really? 
Yeah, they'd rather they'd rather treat the cold, the cold that you have, not the age that causes it. I mean, that that's the way they are. I mean, a Republican senator said to me the other day that oh, if we don't get our fiscal house in order, then it's, we're going to collapse the country. And my counterpoint was, sure, that's true, but if we don't get our cultural house in order, then maybe we deserve to. This is this what what exactly are we powering here in this American republic? Yeah, it's this is going to give the McConnells the excuse. They've already leaked it. That's what they want to focus on. And I think it's it's a very, very stupid strategy for them for a number of reasons. One, this is an off-year election. It's not a general election. So by definition, essentially, not everybody votes. Much less people are going to vote on this. And the ones that are are the base. It's the base elections. So that's why you're seeing an uptick in, in liberal enthusiasm is because the base is driven by some kind of a religious devotion to aborting children. Things like that get them really excited. Uh, and the right is driven the, – the base of the right is not driven by corporate tax cuts no matter what they want to say. The base of the right is not really uh, driven by war in Ukraine. The base of the right are driven by some of the more cultural wars, the kind of things that pushed Glenn Youngkin by any account like a Mitt Romney-esque uh, Republican into victory in Virginia, uh, a purple to complete, nearly blue, pretty much blue state. What pushed him there was some of the battles over the culture wars. That's what's changing people who are voting. If you go to Loudoun County and talk to the parents, that's what's getting them people who'd voted for Barack Obama, people who'd voted for Hillary Clinton to suddenly say, hold on a second, I voted for this, but I don't want this crud taught to my children. Those kind of fights are what motivates the base and gets people going. And those are the fights that win. But McConnell and his consultants just don't want to talk about them. They feel uncomfortable around them. They feel like they feel like when you talk about abortion, when you talk about transgender, when you talk about critical race theory, that you're just going to get a bunch of stupid Republican Yahoo politicians going out there and saying things like legitimate rape, et cetera, like we, they had in previous years. They don't want, they're so much happier just talking about taxes and things that they feel comfortable in. But they're, they're, just, they're not treating our actual diseases. They're just treating our symptoms. And I'm, I'm happy with this. But if, if, all the, if the Democrats can come in here like they do and hire 83,000 new IRS agents guilty and to approve an innocent uh, to attack Americans and, and the Republicans just come back in and change the taxes for four years, what's the difference? We need to go at these things with a more systemic idea for how to cause change, how to disempower their institutions, how to take away the different – all these different wonderful tax exempt ex- exemptions and federal oversight uh, exemptions that we've given to different parts of the country, different sectors of our economy, because they were doing good things for America. Well, those need to be reevaluated. I mean, just remember the other day when we were watching Rand Paul, like my, my favorite time of the year is when Rand Paul and Fauci just going at it. And you have to, everyone, everyone roasts Rand Paul. Fauci owned him again. And then three months later, it comes out that everything Rand Paul said was completely true. Uh, his last one was him asking, Fauci, how much money he made off vaccines? And Fauci said, well, I don't have to answer that question. <laughs> That's a guilty man right there, at least as far as I can tell, in the public eye. And what, why, why, why is that true? Why don't government scientists have to report to Congress on where – I don't mind them making a profit off of their discoveries, but why, why don't they have to report that? And why did Fauci discover that anything to do with vaccines? So we need to – these sort of protections that we've built around the left-wing university systems – uh, around the corporations that would rather sell us out to China, those need to be dealt with. And we need to dispense with the shiny objects, like those Republicans that go out there and they feel perfectly comfortable rattling their saber at Taiwan, which is not America, if you check the last time. Will they ignore the fact that China is selling us fentanyl and, and undercutting our industry and undercutting our jobs 
Taiwan's not the issue. There's a lot of issues to deal with China, and, and they don't want to do it. They'd like to go after the easy stuff, go after the stuff that doesn't take any actual courage to go after. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully podcasts like this and activists and people out there talking about it and writing about it and the politicians can start to change that. But we do need to get past, just like you said, those kind of shiny, easy objects and to, to fight in a more uh, revolutionary way. Yeah, it's um, there. There is an entire infrastructure that protects uh, what are essentially political actors, right? Um, on the left, and there's no similar infrastructure on the right. And I'm not even in favor of building an infrastructure to protect political actors on the right so much as I am removing essentially public protections and public money from one side. We have been fighting this, this, especially the culture war on a completely lopsided field where one, one team is fully funded by the government, by uh, every major corporation. Why are Republicans still sending billions of dollars to universities? That that is a good question for my, I've been asking that question for 10 years. Um, But yeah, there is an entire infrastructure surrounding um, all of this sort of activist work on the left. There's no infrastructure surrounding it on the right. Um, and to your point, Republicans don't seem to have any interest in actually adjusting that infrastructure at all. But that's like, I, look at this. Bank of America had pledged a billion dollars to Black Lives Matter. The Ford Foundation gave like a hundred or something million dollars toward them. And they instigated, they used that money to help instigate riots that saw police officers and civilians murdered. You think that if like the Heritage Foundation had given money to something involved with January 6th. Do you think for a second that their accounts wouldn't be frozen right now and they would have been raided by armed police officers and their executives probably arrested and dragged out of their homes at morning raids that CNN had been tipped off to? Why the, why the hell didn't that happen to Bank of America when they gave a billion dollars to rioting activists uh, and murderous people during the height of riots? Why, why not freeze their funds? Are you donating to terrorism or are you not? That. I mean, this is a dangerous place to get, but we're at a place where our politicians of the left are actively provoking violence against their opponents, cheering it on, and arresting anyone who even speaks out or arresting some of the prominent people who speak out against them, persecuting their political enemies. Like, well, let's get serious. What what are we doing here, and, and are we willing to fight like they are? Are we willing to fight for the country the way that they're willing to fight to take this country? I, I, I'm of two minds about this question, not only because I'm – understandably and I think correctly squeamish about arresting my political opponents. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but also because I fundamentally don't think those systems will work for the right in the same way. Part, part of the, part of the problem is that we have allowed essentially, and we've created a class of people both in the, the public and private sector who have basically all have the same cultural opinions. They have some varying opinions on on some political issues, but when it comes to cultural opinions, they're almost universal. Um, and, and that and that problem, it's not just a uniparty. That would already be something sort of political. Maybe you would hope that a small democracy would be able to work that out over time, that, that the people would punish enough of these parties that, um, or they would, the way that it has worked in American um, democracy in the past, you have a third party that, that never fully succeeds, but grabs a hold of a particular issue, think like Ross Perot, right? Um, and, and punishes one of the two major parties enough that they pick up that issue and it comes into one of the two major parties. I mean, there are ways to deal with recalcitrant politicians within our political system. What worries me more is this kind of uh, cross-institutional collusion 
um, where you have simply everybody who's sort of in the C-suite uh, in, in the, the Fortune 500, plus everybody who's in the, the bureaucracies working in the top parts of the bureaucracies, plus everybody who's working in Hollywood, plus every, like above a certain pay grade, right? The, at a certain point, um, the, the, it's not just a uniparty. It's, it's a uniculture among all different forms of the nation's elite, um, even extending, as you mentioned earlier, into the military at this point. And that, that worries me. I don't think we can actually implement the same things the left can, right? Actually, that was my rage on January 7th, right after, uh, right after January 6th was I was just furious. First of all, I was furious at the people who rioted because I think they, they gave them their Reichstag fire. They gave the left their Reichstag fire, fire right? They gave exactly. them the excuse to do what they wanted to do um, for, for years. And second, it, it, I was mad at their naivete, like, did you think that, you know, because you saw BLM riot, that that the same justice system would, you know, that they would turn a blind eye to the damage and, and destruction and lawbreaking that you're doing? How could you possibly think that? Right. Um, how could you possibly be so naive as to think that you will be treated the same way as the preferred activists of of this entire sort of class? And that's why I, I, I just fundamentally I think we have to I agree with it. It's a counter revolutionary to a certain extent project um but i think it has to be more systemic it can't be we just do the same things the left does and then hope that there's some kind of equilibrium uh, balance or you know sort of mutually sure destruction uh re-emerges in this system i think it has to be more systemic i think we have to think about you know we're gonna have to replace a large part of our elite and that's not gonna be easy it's not i i, I don't have a, a like 10 point plan to do that no, it's a, yeah, you're right. These are these are deep problems. We're we're splitting economies. I mean, that's what RightForge is doing. Is we're building internet server infrastructure so that where we own the ground underneath it, so that people can actually be online. And and we're not. We're, of course, we abide by all American laws, but one of those laws we abide by is the U.S. Constitution and freedom of speech. Something that's increasingly out of fashion in Silicon Valley. By the way, Google Google just Google just kicked Babylon B off of its application store, and that's the kind of things that they're doing right now. Um, Creating a new elite class is something that's a bigger project. I think Marion Smith and some other folks are do, trying to do some good work uh, at the Common Sense Society, Hillsdale, uh, Claremont Institute, trying to do some strong work on that. But it's it's a really uphill fight. One of the things I think we need to do is just what you've been talking about for ten years is really we need to help bankrupt the American university system. These the American system we have for credentialing who are members of our elite is a completely and totally busted thing that fails to educate in any way and simply seems to give you credentials for getting for hitting the right tokens and having the right left-wing beliefs. If we want to stop that, then we need to help defund it. There's no reason that money should be going to these universities anymore for them to undercut the American people. Um, we need to go at some of the – the right has done a good job recently in dis and destroying the allure of a lot of the elites – they used to get scoffed at for, for attacking elites, and now I think that a lot of folks realize. You saw that amazing Ricky Gervais Golden Globes speech a few years ago where he just mocked the Hollywood celebrities right to their faces. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that I think a lot of folks are really onto. The It's, it's going to take a while to take hold, but the, one of the first ways that you do it is you delegitimize them. And they were able to do this to the United States in the reverse. If you go back to the 1920s or 19-teens, the beginning of the progressive era – the the left, aside from like a smattering of unions uh, and trade groups, the, 
and some maybe some student underground organizations, the left didn't control the commanding heights in American industry and American military and American politics and American business uh, and the university systems. They didn't they didn't have it. They fought a rearguard action to over 100 years, make it seem like they're a completely unassailable front that the right couldn't even hope to change it. Uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and stuff, those guys uh, were outliers in the in the elites for wanting to. To be to being for me more progressive, uh, so we can we can change that again. We could have to study some of their tactics, uh, learn from some of the ways they do, and and be at some point as vicious as they were uh, politically in order to get that way. Uh, we could do it, but we are we are short on time right now. The difference between the societal collapse that we're experiencing right now and like say the sixties is just to your point, the elites of the 60s still generally had an understanding of law and order, still generally had a rule of law line of thinking. The Democratic mayor of Chicago would would be willing to use police to put down riots during the DNC. We don't really have that anymore because those radical children of the 60s are now the leaders. Uh, So there's no one there to defend you. But these things can change generation to generation with, with serious hard work and concerted effort. It's just it is difficult to see exactly how much that effort the right is going to be capable of and willing to uh, accomplish on its own. Yeah, I, I keep saying, um, and this is this is something that I, I strongly disagree with. Sort of the, the IDW style left liberals, um, a lot of whom who I've had on this podcast and respect their their work greatly, but um, they they seem to think that this happened maybe in 2015, right? <laughs> um, and I. I keep saying there is not a dime's worth of difference um, between the views of the people I grew up around in Palo Alto all the way back in the 90s and, and early 2000s. Um, there's no difference truly in their their anti-American. And I mean that in the like the broadest sense possible. Their anti-American views then and now. The difference is those people hold institutional power, and they didn't in 1995, right? They mm-hmm. didn't even in 2005. If you want to put that tipping point, was not when these people came out of nowhere, it's when they seized institutional power, largely from a lot of those left liberals who are now um, suddenly waking up, right, to to uh, the danger of, of sort of this illiberal woke wing of the left. But it's not like, like Ibram Kendi's views are actually that different from a lot of the 60s radicals. The difference is now they now they run the world. Now they run the corporations. Now they run like, agencies, people with with those views um, so it's the institutionalization of a radical view more than the emergence of it. Um, so even more than the right destroying them, though, is they might destroy themselves. There's this interesting Intercept article, I think, by Ryan Grimm on how left-wing think tanks and activist groups have been completely hobbled by uh, internal fighting over well, who comes first on the gay pride flag, the transgender or the, or the black brown people or the black and brown people of color or the black and brown trans people of color. We don't really know who comes first. And they, they, they start to fight each other over these things and become handicapped. And that seems to also be playing out in the American corporate world where, you know, if you're Bain and you're just trying to make money here, but you're said being hobbled by uh, social, left-wing social justice ideas or having to move your business out of this city or that city or not be able to do this and you have your partners called into struggle sessions where they get screamed at by 25-year-old junior employees uh, and are afraid of human resources – you know, th- these things start to hobble stuff. And I know what's happening in the left-wing activism world because some of those some of those Republican friends of mine who are willing to work with the left-wing to try and confront similar enemies like Silicon Valley, shared enemies, 
I've noticed they, they've, they've been able to get no supporting fire from left-wing activist groups because they're, they're, they're completely hobbled by their own infighting. And I've heard from the corporate world that the same thing is happening. So maybe even, maybe even before the right ever has to figure out how they're going to fight this juggernaut, this juggernaut's just going to fight itself off of, the, off of a cliff. That's always a hopeful possibility. Maybe. Um, before we before we <laughs> wrap this up, I, I wanted to touch. You've kind of mentioned Right Forge a few times, and I wanted to touch on on the project that you guys are trying to do, right? Because it's not just that you are building, say, like a, a new social media app, right, or like a parlor, or a, what's Trump's one called, Truth Social. Truth. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, you guys are trying to combat exactly what you just mentioned, right, where Babylon B has been kicked out of the actual underlying app platform. And then one step underneath that, the actual like guts of the internet. Um, can you explain a little bit about what you're building and why, why this will this effort will not be canceled like parlor? Well, because we, we're building the highway exactly to your point. We are the servers. So we're not building truth, social social media platform like president Trump's doing. We are the servers that Truth Social runs on. We're the ones that allow you to click on something and get that information back. And there's been a lot of focus in the American people because it's such a public place about social media censorship and the dangers that that poses to American freedoms. But there's much more dangerous things going on, like people being cut off from financial institutions, people being cut off from fundraising, people being cut off from being able to televise their events or even put them on YouTube uh, and get their political speech out there. The things that change that are the internet servers, essentially the highway that the internet runs and drives on. Uh, that's what we do. Uh, we work with all those different kinds of companies to make it so that if you want to start a bank that's not going to cancel people because they're they're pro President Trump, well then you need to you can't just open it up in a town. You need access to the internet, and companies like Amazon Web Services are willing to cancel you and deny your ability to even reach people based on their own politics. We're not. And we're not, we're not, we don't just host right-wing folks. We host some left-wing folks too, dissidents of all kinds, and we're willing to host non-political folks as well. Uh, our general idea is that you deserve access to information. You deserve access to the Internet, and the First Amendment should reign. Good ideas and bad ideas. People should be able to speak their mind. That's a pretty good – was one of the ways that we built this country was that freedom of speech and the willingness to confront bad ideas in the public space and to espouse good ideas without fear – uh, and that's one of the things that Right Forge strives to do. Well, with that, uh, you can find Chris Bedford and you can find Right Forge. I think it's rightforge.com, right? It is. Um, and then you can find Chris at, over at Twitter at cbedforddc. That's his handle. Um, you can find his work over at The Federalist. You can listen to him frequently on The Federalist, on Fox, a lot of other places. Um, Chris Bedford, thank you so much for coming on High Noon today. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Setman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.setman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Hopefully, those things will not be <laughs> shutting us down. Maybe eventually we'll be posted on Redforge. Right right yeah. <laughs> um, but be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.